Growing up, I had hearing loss from the time that I was like five years old on. And it was really frustrating in school, not being able to hear teachers. By the time I got to high school, my hearing loss had um, gone down far enough, even with surgeries to fix my eardrums, that I ended up having hearing aids when I was in 11th grade. I went on a retreat and it was in DC. Uh, we went to David's tent and actually as we were going out, um, one of the guys that works in there came out and started talking to us about healing. And then as we were walking away, I looked over at one of my friends and was like, okay, I think today's the day I want to pray over my ears. So we were about halfway between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. And we stepped over into the grass and we started praying over my ears. And at first I was like, I don't really know what what's going on, what's gonna happen. Um, and so we took my hearing aids out and everybody was praying over my ears. And at first I wasn't really sure if anything was changing or not. Um, but one of my friends like walked away. He said, like, can you hear me? And I was like, maybe. I don't really know. I think I can hear you better, but so everybody kept praying over my ears. Um, after a little bit, he was able to walk away, turn around, and talk to me from the other side of the sidewalk, and I could hear him clear as day, and he was whispering. So it has been two years since the day that I took out my hearing aids, um, and I haven't needed to use them since. Doctors tried uh, to fix my ears and the same thing just happened over and over and again. Um, and I still had hearing loss, but um, God stepped down and within minutes, um, what doctors couldn't do in 19 years, he did it in that moment. God really is still doing miracles today. Caitlin is, uh, she might be crawling under the seat over here, but Caitlin, would you stand up? I know you're here today. And can we just thank God with Caitlin for what God did in her life this morning? There's been several times here at church that Caitlin has heard from the Lord and came up and shared it. And all of those times, God reminded me that he didn't just heal her in the natural that he healed her ears so she could hear God's voice. And I'm so thankful. I pray for that healing in each of our lives, that we'd be able to hear it when God whispers to us. So a miracle. We talked about last week, it's an unusual manifestation of God's power designed to accomplish a specific purpose. And the gospel records 35 miracles of Jesus. In fact, John, uh, John's gospel ends in John 21, 25, saying that Jesus did many other things as well, and the world would not have enough room for all of the books if they were written down. So these 35 miracles can be summarized into four main categories if we look at them from a big picture view. Miracles over sickness or disease, which is what happened with Caitlin. Uh, miracles of nature, so things that physically happened, storms that were calmed, or uh, situations in nature, uh, miracles involving demon possession, and miracles that reverse death. 
And so those were the four categories of miracles we see in the scripture. And the Gospel of John reveals seven of those 35 miracles. And these seven miracles are also called the seven signs that point straight to the fullness of who Jesus is. And so for the next several weeks, um, every Sunday until Easter, uh, we're going to look at the seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And I want to tell you that I have been so excited to preach these messages, and it's really good when the pastor's excited to preach the message, okay? But you got to just be really engaged and excited with me. But I've been so excited to look at this because I believe that we are going to be encouraged. I believe that, that we're going to be excited And I really believe that God has miracles that he is going to unleash before our very eyes and in our midst like he did in Caitlin's story. And so I want to encourage you to be here for every single week. And and I also have a challenge. There's a challenge attached to this series. And it's a challenge I want you to take very, very seriously. In the book of Acts alone, we count there's at least 17 times where miracles led people to faith in Jesus. 17 times, just in the book of Acts. And Peter and John, who are uh, uh, people in the Bible, they prayed ceaselessly for signs and wonders. But they did that, not so that they could be amazed, but they did that because these miraculous moments brought multitudes to Jesus. So who do you know that needs a miracle? Who in your circle of influence needs a breakthrough? Who is sick? Who is far from God? Who is backed up against the wall? Who is brokenhearted? Who has not turned their heart to Jesus and if they died today would not enter eternity with God? Who is it? And I'm praying right now, we prayed all week as a staff, that even in this moment, God would now begin to bring to mind people in your life, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school. Because miracles are a sign to the unbeliever that God is who he says he is. And I'm believing now is the time. This is the series. Here is the challenge. And the next four weeks of the series, I want you to take a risk, to to make a call, to send a text, to, to offer to go pick them up, to not give up too easily because God didn't give up on us too easily. Thank you, Jesus. And to to think of this person, and I am challenging you, each of you, just to think of one person, just one. I made the challenge doable, okay? Just one person, and I want you to bring one person to experience the presence of God in the next four weeks of this miracle series leading up to Easter. Just one person. Now, we are challenging our youth with this. We are challenging our kids with this. So if your kids come home and they're like, Mom, I'm going to invite all my friends. You better fire up the minivan, okay? (laughs) Because that's what we're telling them to do. We're challenging our youth. We're challenging our kids. and, And I want you to start thinking about who that is. And whatever excuse right now is tempting you, don't disclude yourself. Whatever it is that's right now saying, well, she's talking to everyone else but me, The Holy Spirit of God is reminding you, no, she's talking to you. And I want you to start thinking, even now as I preach through this message, because at the end of service today, we're going to have an action step involving the person that God impresses on your heart. So I am asking right now, even for you to pray as we go through this message, who do you know that needs a miracle? Now, the prerequisite for a miracle is a problem. 
So maybe a better question is, who do you know that has a problem? (laughs) Who do you know that has more than one problem? Who do you know that has a big problem? Because the bigger the problem, the bigger potential for a miracle. We see that in the scripture over and over. And it's interesting because everyone wants a miracle, but no one wants to be put in a place where we need one. Everyone wants to experience a miracle, but you can't have one without the other. You actually have to have no wine to have the winemaker come make you some. You have to experience the problem to experience the miracle. So I just want to talk a little bit about miracles, and then we're going to dive in specifically today, talking about when Jesus turned water into wine. So over the course of your walk with God, um, you may have witnessed someone trying to manufacture a miracle. And maybe you've been turned off by that. Maybe you've even been skeptical, maybe jaded even, Um, Perhaps someone made a bigger deal out of something that wasn't significant in your eyes or didn't tell the whole story, the whole truth. And, And is it possible for someone to falsely claim a miracle has happened when it didn't? Yes, it is. It's possible. But discernment and skepticism are a fine line. Discernment is filtering between what is false and what is true with the help of the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. But skepticism is this predisposed disbelief. It's, it's this prejudice because of a past experience. And it's basically saying, because I had a bad experience with that one person that one time, therefore, all miracles actually aren't true. And what I want you to remember during this series is counterfeit miracles do not negate the genuine article. Counterfeit miracles do not negate the genuine article. God can do now what he did then. The scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a miracle-working God. And so if you are skeptical because of an experience you had with a human, let me remind you it was an experience you had with a human. (laughs) You can be skeptical about humanity, That is probably something we will all fight our entire life. But if that has bled over into skepticism of who God is, you need to repent and ask God to restore back to you the faith that you need to believe that he did it before and he will do it again. And so he has proved who he is. I got word recently, uh, a sweet friend of mine, who came up through Chi Alpha uh, for many years and lives out of the city now, um, was raised by her mom, just her mom, a single mom. And um, her mom uh, tragically died a few weeks ago. Um, my friend was in her late 20s, and um, her mom was only 57. And her mom had a heart attack suddenly. And they transferred her to the hospital in this other city. And um, she was there for about 36 hours. And Uh, the hospital actually made a a grave error in her care, um, which resulted in her mom losing her life. And my friend messaged me, and she said, I prayed over my mom for 36 hours straight. I didn't sleep for a moment of that time, and I begged God for the miracles that you taught me happen, Nicole Schreiber. Why didn't he help me? And I, I wept at my computer when I was trying to form some type of words to reply back to her. But this is what I wrote to my friend. I said, I don't know. 
I don't know why some prayers aren't answered or why some miracles don't happen the way we ask. But I do know that God is still good and he didn't leave you for a second. He didn't sleep either of those 36 hours. And my friend wrote back and she said, that doesn't help. And I said, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but I'm gonna walk with you through it. And when things don't work out the way we expect them or we want them to, we do this thing. We do this in our earthly relationships too. When we begin to be disappointed, we pull back, right? We pull our faith back. We, we don't trust people as much anymore because we don't want to feel disappointed. We just want to stay in the confines of what we know is safe. We don't want to put our hearts out there. And we do this with God. When we don't experience a miracle the way we ask or the way we want, we let disappointment come in and then we quit believing in miracles altogether. We, we quit trusting that God can do it and we pull back our faith. And what I want to encourage you this morning is if you prayed for a miracle for a very long time and you, it didn't happen, it didn't happen the way you asked God for we have to resist pulling back from God because of that. We have to resist not trusting Jesus just because it didn't happen the way that we asked him to do it. In Mark 9, 22 through 24, we, we see this moment where the stage is being set for a miracle. A boy's father is asking Jesus for help. His son had been tormented by a demon. And um, he says, uh, verse 22, it is it, meaning the demon, has often thrown him, his son, into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And isn't that all of us at one point or another? That, that we carry this unbelief in our hearts. God, help us overcome our unbelief. And so this series, this miracle series, my prayer for you is that if you are skeptical or you are disappointed, that the Holy Spirit of God would fill you with faith and fill you with belief that God is who he says he is, he can do what he says he can do, and we can trust him for it. Miracles are happening all around us all the time. And we won't see them if we don't look for them. It's that concept, um, if you are looking for yellow cars, you always are seeing yellow cars. <laughs> if you're looking for uh, certain things, you're always going to see them. So psychologists actually have a word for it. It's called inattentional blindness. It's the failure to notice something in your field of vision because you're focused on something else. So I have a little test for you. Uh, watch this video and see, see how well you do. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to miss something when you're not looking for it. Who saw the moonwalking bear the first time? 
Ah, only a few of you, the top of humanity. Um, Inattentional blindness is being so focused on one thing that you lose sight of what's actually in your view. It's missing the moonwalking bear. And I'd like to, to tell you this morning that miracles are happening all around you, but it's like the moonwalking bear. You're missing it. You're missing it because you're not looking for it. Inattentional blindness is also turning a blind eye to something that you don't want to see or a fading awareness of things in your life that you take for granted. So in the first century, we see the Pharisees. They were so focused on the Sabbath law that they couldn't see miracles happening right before their eyes. And they complained that the miracle would happen on the wrong day of the week rather than praising God for the healing of the sick person. Now that can happen to us if we're not careful too in our faith. Because what happens is we get all caught up in the details. Well, God didn't do it the way I thought he would. He didn't do it on Tuesday. I waited for it on Tuesday. He didn't do it on the day I thought he would or the way that I thought it would. But one of the truest tests of spiritual maturity is seeing the miraculous in the monotonous. One of the truest tests is being able to see the miraculous in the monotonous. And miracles are happening all around us. And we have to look for them. We have to acknowledge them. We have to be intentional about not losing the awe of God or the miracles he performs. In fact, the single greatest miracle is the forgiveness of sin made possible through the crucifixion and resurrection of the sinless son of God, Jesus. Of all the 35 miracles documented, there is no close second to that one. This miracle of salvation, this one is available at any time, to anyone, anywhere. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, this is a miracle you've experienced firsthand. Don't lose your awe of what God has done in your life. Don't lose your awe of that miracle. So we're going to look in the first miracle in the Gospel of John, found in John 2, and we're going to work through this passage piece by piece so we don't miss anything. Um, So we're going to start in John 2. You may have heard this story, but I want to give it to you with a whole new perspective today, with a whole new eyes with a moonwalking bear, okay? That's what we're going to do this morning. John 2 starts like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, let's stop there. The text references on the third day because weddings in that culture lasted a week. How about that? They lasted an entire week. So what this is saying, it was the third day of the celebration. These people have been drinking the wine for three days. And on the third day of the celebration, we find ourselves in a small little town called Cana. And we know Mary was there. We know Jesus was there. We know some of the disciples were there. Theologians estimate that at that time, he probably had gathered about five of his disciples. So not all 12 were there, but about five of them were there with him. Uh, There's no mention of Joseph. Joel tries to skip weddings I have to go to, too. But but they actually think that Joseph had probably died by then. Um, So Jesus is there. His mom's there. The disciples are there. Now, Mary must have been helping or had something to do with the arrangements because she was aware of when the wine ran out. They were not advertising this to to the people. It was embarrassing. So Mary knew. Now, we don't know for sure. But some ancient documents suggest that Mary was helping her mother, or, or I'm sorry, her sister, Salome, at this wedding. 
which would indicate to us that the groom of the wedding could have possibly been John himself. And so John is quite possibly recording firsthand what happened at his own wedding. Isn't that amazing? And like I said, we don't know for sure. That's not what the scripture exactly says. But what we do know for sure is that it was clearly an eyewitness account. There are too many details that someone wasn't actually there to be able to, to talk about it. And so running out of wine might seem like a minor problem in the grand scheme of things, uh, but in first century Palestine, it would have been a huge deal. It would have resulted in public shame. And so they were truly panicking. I also love how this miracle reveals how much God cares about the small details of our lives. That, that God is, is, is great because nothing is too big for him, but God is also great because nothing is too small for him. It is a big deal to you if it's a big deal If it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to God. And so let's continue. Uh, Verse 4. So Mary says, we're out of wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And verse 5 said, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now I want to unpack this a little bit because in the original text, uh, I feel like when we read it now, it feels a little rude. Like why is Jesus calling his mother woman? That wouldn't go over very well uh, in, in, you know, culture context. It's very disrespectful. But in the original text, uh, Mary uses an expression to Jesus that is translated, they're out of wine. So that's what we're reading. But it, it has this sort of underlying connotation like, Jesus, they're out of wine. We really need to do something. It was sort of this urgent, listen, they're out of wine. Like, we really need to do something. And so Jesus replies with woman. And here, uh, like I said, it sounds a bit harsh, but it's more like he's saying, ma'am. Like, yes, ma'am. Like, I'm hearing you. Like, you are obviously very, like when my children, when my husband's stern with them, they say, yes, sir. You know, I'm hearing you. Like, it's not disrespectful. It's a respectful thing. Yes, ma'am. But then it's as if Jesus says, "Um, what do you mean we Like, you're the wedding coordinator, not my problem. What do you mean we have a problem? It's like when we had our firstborn daughter, Cecily, and after hours of labor and unpleasant pain and recovery, friends came to visit, and Joel exclaims, look, we had a baby. You ate ice chips and looked at Craigslist. I had a baby. Like, that's... That's really what happened there. But, but we, Jesus is saying we, like, what do you mean we? He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, what he's referring to, Jesus' hour, was the hour of his death when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. And what Mary didn't know is that the miracle road that would begin in Cana would lead straight to Calvary. But Jesus knew, and it was as if his first miracle would trigger the countdown clock to the crucifixion. He knew that once he started down this road, it couldn't be reversed. And so even in that moment, there was a little bit of pushback there, right? There was a little bit of moment of, what do you mean this is my problem? He decides to go ahead with the miracle. And what Jesus is doing here is he is giving a sign of what is to come. It's as if he's thinking, I'm going to do this miracle and I'm going to make it count. He is acting out a parable of what his death will mean. 
All right, let's keep reading. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, there are six water jars. That matters. There's not seven. Six, one short of the perfect number. And what John's message is to us is that six stone jars illustrate a way of relating to God that's nearly incomplete, but Jesus will be the perfect finish to our way of knowing God. That those six ceremonial cleansing jars will never get us through into the kingdom of God, into eternity. But Jesus Christ himself will be the way to get us to heaven. And so the ceremonial washing passage uh, mentioned comes from the teaching of Psalm 23, uh, excuse me, Psalm 24, 3 through 4, where in the scripture it actually says, uh, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god, they are the people who can come to the holy place. They are the people that can come to the mountain of the Lord. And so for centuries, Jewish worshipers would dip their hands into this ceremonial water. They would go to those jars and they would dip their hands in them. And then they would come back to God and they would say, look, my hands are clean. My heart is pure. My practice is proof. I did it. I'm clean. Now I can come into the temple. Now I can come in and see you. And so Jesus focuses his attention on those six stone water jars, and he says, fill those to the brim. And here's the reason. Jesus chooses water jars that were used for purification, not for drinking, when he performs his miracle. And he fills them with wine. Because it's as if he's saying, my impending death is the ultimate purification of sin that will eventually nullify and replace this all. Guess what? Soon, you don't know that this is happening, but you're not going to need these purification jars anymore because I will be the the person that cleanses you. I will be the only way to God. And you won't even need to wash your hands anymore because the only way you'll be able to is to have your blood over, my blood over your sin. Do you see that? That wasn't just random. Uh, There's some water jars. Jesus was saying, let me show you what's going to happen. If I'm going to do a miracle... Let me teach you about the ultimate miracle that is about to happen. And so verse 8, he tells them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. And Jesus knew the time for making the real wine. His blood shed on the cross had not come but that this wedding wine poured out in these vessels of purification foreshadowed the best of all wines, which would be served after humans had failed in sin and missed the mark, and they would need a savior. And this wine, this blood of Jesus, would flow freely with infinite abundance from the purest vessel of all time for the greatest wedding of all time. Wow. Verse 11 says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first miracle foreshadows the last. At the wedding, Jesus turned water into wine. At the last supper, Jesus raised the cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many sins. 
and the wine represented his blood that would be shed as a sinless sacrifice, the greatest miracle of all. One thing to remember when we're talking about miracles this month is we shouldn't seek miracles, we should follow Jesus. And if we follow Jesus long enough and far enough and close enough, we won't be able to help but find ourselves in the middle of some miracles. Because that is who he is. So here's how we're going to end today. Uh, The band is going to come back up, and the service hosts are going to help us out uh, this morning again. And in preparation for our challenge of this series, when I, I asked you that each one of you would invite one person to church in the next four weeks to experience the presence of God, um, you're going to need some prayer support. You're going to need some prayer support so that you don't evade my challenge. <laughs> you're going to need some prayer support because God's going to have to go before you so that that other person will tell you yes. And so I want you to take that card out of your uh, front pocket there of your pew. It always sounds like an airplane to me, but you know what I mean. And um, I want you to write down the name of that person. Now listen, if the person doesn't live in Erie, if they live in a different state, you might want to rethink your selection. I mean, God can do miracles, but I want you to um, write it down discreetly. Someone else is going to see this, so you might want to write just a first name. You wanna, might want to write just an initial. You may want to write just my mom or my boss because we're going to collect them. We're going to redistribute them randomly so you can pray over each other, so you can pray for each other. We've done this before. And so just go ahead and take the card out. I want you to write down who you're going to pray about, who you're going to ask, invite to church to experience a miracle, who has a problem, who needs a miracle. The worship team's going to play. I'm just going to give you a minute to do that. If there's not a card in your seat, turn around behind you. There's got to be one there. We're just going to take a minute. We're all going to do this together. Okay, if you're all done writing your name um, that you're going to pray for in the paper, would you just stand up? And the worship hosts are going to, uh, service hosts are going to come. And they're going to uh, begin to pass the bags across. I want you to put it in there. And we're going to worship together. We're going to sing this song, Do It Again. We're going to worship God for who he is, the miracle worker. He turns water into wine. He does the miraculous. So, yeah, you can go ahead and pass the bag. Put your cards in. And then we're going to worship through this song. And then in just a moment, we'll dismiss.
Your promise still stands. Great is your faith.